Hey everybody, it's Kevin. I just wanted to let you know that this episode includes discussion about suicide, domestic violence, and sexual abuse, so please take care while listening. Welcome in, everybody, to another edition of Sad Times. I said it that way because I didn't like the other way I was saying it. That's Sad Times. My name is Kevin. Thank you so much for joining us. For those of you who have never been or listened to Sad Times, welcome. Let me give you a quick primer. So happy you stopped by. Sad Times is a show in which each week we have a kind and generous guest who talks about very difficult, traumatic times in their life. Uh, how they were feeling when they went through those times and the after effects of those. Uh, We do believe at sad times that this type of trauma is something that we all go through various types of trauma is what I'm saying. And yet we don't talk about it very much. The goal here is to allow these guests to come on, tell their stories so that you at home or driving in the car or doing the dishes or whatever you're doing can feel a little bit less alone and maybe hear something where you thought, oh, I thought I was the only one who felt that way. So That's what Sad Times is. Again, thank you so much. If you haven't already, please subscribe uh, and make sure we do come out every Tuesday. Uh, We do have a website, which is www.sadtimespodcast.com. There you can find all of our episodes. You can register there to be a guest as well as some other things, as well as leaving a review. So that's Sad Times. Of course, we wouldn't be here if we didn't have our wonderful sponsors. So let's... Get to this week's sponsor, which is the Did I Take My Pills Today game. Forget Monopoly, Trivial Pursuit, or Minecraft. The hottest game sweeping the nation is Did I Take My Pills Today? Trademark Omnisad. Sure, there are days of the week pill containers, but why use those when you can be anxious about the pills that are supposed to make you less anxious? That's Did I Take My Pills Today? Trademark Omnisad. Make mental health management fun. All right. And now that the bills are paid, remember, though, you got to support our sponsors. Please use the code F-A-K-E. That's F-A-K-E at checkout. All right. Enough of that shit. Let's get to why we're here. We have a wonderful guest today. Her name is Ashley. Ashley, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you. Thank you so much, too, for having me on this podcast. What a wonderful opportunity. I'm honestly honored. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. Of course. Happy to have you. And I know we're going to get into uh, your story here in a moment, but let's start with where are you from? Where are you, where are you right now and where are you from? Um, I am from Canada, so it is very cold here. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, today was plus two, so not that bad. But next week's weather is supposed to be minus 12 is the high. So not looking forward to that one bit. I'd love to be somewhere warm right now. Yeah. Now, let me ask you, as growing up in Canada, I've always wondered, I've been to Canada, but very briefly, do you get used to it or do you just hate it every winter? I just, I hate winter. It's like the older I get, the more I just can't take it anymore. I wish I could just hibernate like a bear or something. Um, I'm such a summer person and I feel like, with somebody who suffers from depression and anxiety and PTSD, I feel like it really wears on you winter. I That's like the highest suicide rate as well, right? Yeah. Um, it's so dark. It's so gloomy. Um, like I get tired very easily yeah. now. Um, there are times, there are moments where I, I do take naps because I'm just so exhausted. And again, you know, that's from mental health and that's why it's so important to 
focus on you and and go at your own pace. Um, where I find myself in the summertime, I have so much more energy. I'm I'm going for runs constantly. I'm working out constantly. In the winter time, I still do work out. Don't get me wrong. But my level of energy isn't anywhere where it is in the summertime where I feel more free. I'm not, you know, in in constant fear. I got to get home before it gets dark type mode. I'm in like summer mode. I'm like cool and calm and more collective. I find myself, I find myself more at peace. I find myself more at at chaos and and pressure in the wintertime. Uh, you know, especially with Christmas, especially with the holidays, it becomes extremely overwhelming because you feel like you need to do certain things, get certain things done right. at a certain date. It's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of anxiety. Um, however, the summertime, I just feel more at ease. I feel more like myself, where in the wintertime, I, I struggle more. And I know that so many people can relate to that same feeling. For sure. Um, and for those of you, you know, just out of curiosity for anybody, we're recording shortly after the new year here. So, you know, th- in getting into the thick of January, uh, where, as Ashley was saying, those temperatures are pure shit. So, um, okay. And where did you grow up, Ashley? Uh, I grew up in Ontario. Okay. Um, I grew up in a rough neighborhood, not the best. Um we got lots of letters from our elementary school teachers saying when there was a criminal in the area, that's how wow. rough my neighborhood was. Yes. Okay. Um, you learned the stranger danger talk uh, very early on. Um, it wasn't the safest. Like, we weren't allowed in the backyard by ourselves. Um, At your own home, you weren't allowed in the backyard. Uh, nope. Nope. Uh, there wow. was actually a guy arrested in my alleyway who was uh, a child offender. So, no, it was uh, pretty bad. It was pretty ghetto and where I grew up. Um, I mean, it wasn't the worst. worst. I'm sure there's worse places in the world. Um, But you didn't really go by yourself anywhere. Like, we weren't allowed on the porch as kids by ourselves. I mean, we had two German Shepherds, too, growing up. Um, Oh, that's a good thing to have. It was. It was a really good thing to have two German shepherds. Yeah, they were, they were great. A boy and a girl. Cody and Duchess were their names. Oh. And yeah. But um. And what type of and, house did you grow up in? Not not meaning the type of house. Like, what was it like growing up? It was extremely <laughs> difficult. Um, I felt a lot of neglect. I felt a lot of pain i felt very unworthy i felt very depressed i thought about suicide many times um growing up um when my sister was born uh my mother she paid more attention to my sister and kind of neglected me i mean they would go on shopping sprees and leave me behind it was very much so the two of them and I was disincluded a lot of times. I at the times that I would go shopping with them, they would kind of make fun of my weight. Uh, so that kind of like I wasn't anything where yeah. I wasn't, you know, obese or anything like that. But I wasn't I wasn't good enough for them. I wasn't what they wanted, what they thought. Um, it was very 
competitive. I, I tried to get, you know, approval. I tried to be the best that I could be. And it just, it always fell short for some reason. It always wasn't enough. And, uh, um, and this was, go, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. My biological dad, who I've had to contact the police on multiple times for contacting me. Um, he Do you have a restraining very, order type uh, against him? No, not if he contacts me again, there will be. Uh, I see. There will be that. Okay. Um, he was told by police multiple times not to contact me. Anyways, he uh, slapped me across the head uh. and he called me effing stupid when I was little uh i was probably in grade six at the time wow i'm so sorry and oh that's okay um he punched a hole through the door a lot of anger a lot of temper a lot of madness a lot of chaos i watched oh. my my parents yell and scream at each other it was it was brutal it was horrific i remember like just being in like panic mode and and like you just and he would call her horrific names in front of us. It was and was, very intense. Was this pretty much a pretty regular occurrence? Their relationship was so dysfunctional. They would get together, then be apart, then get together, oh, then be mm -hmm. apart. Uh, now, uh, I believe mm -hmm. my I don't talk to my biological mother, but she has <laughs> moved on with her life. She's gotten remarried, etc. I don't know about him i don't i don't really want anything to do with both of them like really and truly i'm a big believer that family is what you make it to be in yeah. these two i just especially after my trauma in 2016 i had to cut ties with them because it was just so much toxicity just so, like i was pretty much like when everything happened to me in 2016 being a witness to a homicide yeah. My biological yeah. mother came down, and the first thing out of her mouth was, Hi, Tanny. I can't sleep. I'm so stressed. I'm so worried. And it was very much, she just made it about herself. And I was like, This isn't, this isn't the support that I need. This isn't, this isn't helping the situation. This is hindering me. And I had to, and I was always the one, like, I believe every relationship should be 50 50. And sometimes, you know, it's going to be more or less. I, I get that. But, regardless on average from day to day it should be 50 50 and i was always the one calling her and i would have to ask her on the phone are you going to ask me how i am and eventually i just got sick and tired of putting in all this effort all the time because it was just, i was burning out i was burning out and so i just had to cut ties cut loose of that and i realized that family is everything that you make it to be it does not have to be blood related by any means um, you know, you are what you put out there. And I had so many positive, inspirational people surrounding yeah. me when I was going through such yeah. horrific events in my life. Yeah. And those are the people today that I talk to and have a relationship with. You know, my boyfriend, my aunt, my grandma, mm -hmm. my stepkids, my everything and everyone that is important to me has given me nothing but positivity, has given me nothing but inspiration, has made me become the person that I am today. You know, Patty, Jane, Chelsea, like Chelsea is pretty much what I call my sister. She's everything that I know. She's like Patty, Chelsea, and Jane were there for me every single day in the trial, 
wiping my tears away, literally getting Kleenex. Like they were there. They gave up their lives for two weeks to be there every single day, holding my hand, never complaining. Those three are more family to me than than anything. I mean, my aunt, my grandma, my cousins are my blood family, and I love them greatly. And I appreciate everything that they've done from for me from the bottom of my heart. Um, but you really find out really fast when you're going through trauma and going through something horrific who's in your corner and who's not. And I know a lot of people have this thing where they're like, "Oh, I I can't cut out family like it's it's blood related." But if somebody is putting so much toxicity in your life, it's time to let that person go and just wash your hands of it. No matter how blood related they are, that shouldn't matter. You can make your own life. You can define your own life. And that's by having positive, meaningful relationships with people that are going to uplift you and support you. Right. I, I um <clears throat> I think that's well said and and you did get to your you mentioned the main trauma we're going to get to that in just a moment. Uh, let me ask you this. So you you mentioned your grandmother a few times. Is that who ended up raising you kind of and instilling uh, you it? Know what? Honestly, pretty much. I mean, my biological mom, she worked, she had a good job. Um however, my grandparents, yeah, they they taught me how to read, they taught me how to write, they taught yeah. me respect, okay. they taught me values. Everything I know today is because of the two of them. I mean, my papa, he passed away uh, at least 10, 12 years ago, I want to say now. And it's it's been awful not having him to to call about certain things. Like, I, I miss him. I miss his voice. Um, he was such a great influence in my life. So positive, so genuine, just so down to earth. My grandparents were each other's first and last and they just they had a beautiful meaningful relationship and they inspired so much knowledge and and wisdom in me and they just made me the person that i am today without a shadow of a doubt i wouldn't be where i am without them that's uh, always wonderful to hear and i love the way that you were talking about your friends and how what your friends mean to you i know for me uh my close friends are everything to me i'm lucky so lucky to have them all of my friends so i i hear you on that as well um well let's kind of get into it you 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 mentioned that uh there was a homicide so why don't you uh well take you a little back before the homicide so i actually after everything happened and i separated myself from oh yes my the, the toxicity. I had more toxicity in college. What does where, that mean? Um, pardon? I said, what What do you mean by that? Uh, I found my first boyfriend ever in college. Okay. And that was the biggest, most worst mistake that I could ever make. Why do you say it that? It was so abusive. I was pushed into walls. I was cheated on. I invited the girl over to my house and I watched them kiss on the balcony. I was in the middle of my final exams, trying to find myself a place to live. Somehow, I don't know how I did it, but I passed my exam with flying colors. I got 90% on all of them. Um, but wow. I good had for to you. find a place to live. It was, was that extreme- you were were you were moving out from 
the the from this w- from your, yeah from, with from your from boyfriend. My, this was my first relationship ever, and it was in college because in high school I was that goody two shoes. I was student council. I was honor roll. Um, I was the girl that did the announcements every morning. So in high school, I was very much sheltered from like the party scene, from having a boyfriend pretty much. And uh, I was the good girl. And in college, I kind of rebelled and um, I became someone that I kind of wasn't. And I was just way over my head. And I thought that getting into a relationship was the best idea, but it really truly wasn't. Um, and my relationships from then on just became more destructive, more chaotic, and almost under my life. Okay. So also, I will say, if you are in a situation um, where you are being domestically abused, meaning somebody who's listening to this, we will have some information on that in the show notes that you can click on. Uh, to, to find out how you can get help. Uh, and, you know, Ashley, I'm so sorry that you went through that. I'm really glad that you got out of that situation. You said, I don't, uh, something along the lines of, I don't know how I found another place to live, but I did. Well, you did it because you're strong. And um, Thank you. you're welcome. And I'm glad that you got out of that situation. I'm sorry to hear that. Unfortunately, it, you, you continued to have similar situations uh, until we get to, uh, you know, the trauma in 2016. So let's start by the run that you were on when you were in 2016 and kind of what happened there. Yeah. So um, this was at the end of July, beginning of August. I was going for a run in broad daylight. And Will at the time who yes. committed this horrific homicide, he was staying with me and the deceased. And uh, I said to him, I'm going for a run. And I was assaulted in a park, grabbed in broad daylight. Um, It was scary. It was hurt. Like, I just, I didn't even know what to do. And I I called my friend immediately. And uh, then I spoke to another friend a couple of days ago. And she's like, yeah, this guy's been in the paper. He's been doing it to multiple girls. And you know what? Young, silly me, naive and everything that I am, didn't make that call the police which i totally should have i kind of was just in utter shock and i didn't know what to do and And, so uh, your friend that you spoke with knew this was something that was happening often in the area yeah correct um i don't know if they ever found the guy i that was probably one of my biggest mistakes is not reporting this because i just again i was so young i was so naive i you think because it's daylight that nothing's going to happen when really and truly trauma can happen whenever, no matter what, no matter yeah. if it's daylight, no matter if it's sunlight, whatever the case may be. And you got away from him pretty quickly or? I did. I Good. did. I did. Uh, and he got away from me pretty quickly after he grabbed me. Okay. Um, He was on a bike, actually. All so right. it was uh, it was pretty traumatizing. And then. Weeks after that, uh, I found myself in a horrific situation where I was left to fight for my life. Um, well, I, so, in in that case, which is <laughs> horrific, is is a good term for that, right? Uh, of course. Um, absolutely. And I wish that I could say that this is just an Ashley situation, but this is a worldwide epidemic. Like, I have people... <laughs> 
who reach out to me who tell me that they've been in similar situations and it is absolutely heart-wrenching that this is just keeps getting and going on the rise on the rise it's not slowing down crime is just really and truly taken a hard hard toll and it's become such an epidemic um so it's not just an isolated situation and trauma doesn't discriminate trauma doesn't care how old how young you are your age your gender your race trauma doesn't care okay. and that's what people don't understand well, they, um, however, they don't they don't understand i i would say that yes people don't generally understand that they also don't I think no. the general consensus is they think there's an easy way to get over trauma when there there most certainly is oh, not. Yes, absolutely. Like people don't understand. People think because people are rich that trauma is not going to happen to them. Guess what? It it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. Trauma is unfortunately <laughs> going to happen to that person, no matter who they are, no matter how much money they put out there. Trauma can happen to anybody at any given time. Okay. And that's just the reality. Right. Uh, and that is the reality. And it was near the end of August. Now, kind of August 28th, mm -hmm. August 28th of 2016. Tell us Correct. you got a phone call and then kind of take us through. So I'll start by telling you I worked for Good Life Fitness at the time. I met Will. And uh, we were off and on. And he went to El West for some business stuff. Came back, wasn't successful. He was staying with the deceased. So I had my own apartment, so did the deceased. But he would kind of go back and forth, which was fine. Um, and then I was at a good life goodbye party for my boss. And I was, I was actually one of the last people to talk to the deceased. And I had talked to them, both, both of them, prior to that night. Uh, they actually went to uh, a store and bought a box of wine and was having fun watching a movie as far as I knew. And um, then at 5 a.m. the next morning, I got a call from Will telling me to show up to Nathan's apartment. I mean, I didn't think it was anything out of the ordinary because Will and I got together. Like our schedules were just chaotic and we got together at any given time. So, so even 5 a.m.? Even 5 a.m. was no, not out of the order. 5 a.m. was not. I mean, there were times where on a Saturday night, you know, he'd go with his friends, I'd go with my friends, and we'd come back at 3 a.m. and hang out. Like, mm -hmm. it wasn't anything unusual. So I I was like, okay, sure, like, I'll come over. I mean, I've gotten, what, two, three hours of sleep because I was at a party the night before. <laughs> so I quickly I put on some makeup, and I went over. Mm -hmm. Took a cab there. I was outside for 45 minutes before he would even let me into the apartment. So you were like hitting the buzzer or whatever it is. And was he responding? Uh, I wasn't hitting a buzzer. Finally, somebody came and they let me into the front lobby. So I was sitting in a chair waiting ah, for him. Okay. And then he said he finally met me down there. We were outside for a little bit and he had some scrapes on his foot. And I said, you know, what happened to your foot? And he was like, oh, some gloss or something. Yeah. Like, and I was like, all right, like, whatever. And like, didn't think anything of it because I mean, Willard School for Criminology and Police Foundations, like, none of this, like, he was never 
physically abusive. I mean, he was a bit cocky and a bit arrogant at times, <laughs> um, you know, but nothing violent where I thought that this <laughs> could ever cross my mind to happen. I mean, him and the deceased were like what? brothers. They were inseparable. They were friends for yeah. 10 yeah. plus years. I mean, the deceased's yeah. family would invite Will over all the time for dinners, etc. Um, <laughs> so that part I didn't like they treated him like another family member. And so anyways, I, I'm there at the building. We go outside and talk and then we find, then somebody else comes, another guy that Will had called. And I said to him, I said, just go home. Cause this guy was on a night shift. So he went home because uh, one of the elevators were broken. So we waited for the other elevator to work. Finally, we got up to the 18th floor. And that's when he said, are you sure you want to go in? Are you sure you want to go in? And I said, why wouldn't I? He's like, well, I know you don't like messes, da 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 And so-, so let me, Sorry to interrupt you, Ashley. I just want to make sure. You have no idea what you're walking into at this point. Absolutely not. And why was it that Will called that other person, uh, that, that other guy? Did did he ever tell you or I, did, you, did you ever find out? I have no idea. And I don't, honestly, people ask me this all the time. Why did he do this? Why did he do that? Honestly, there is no real reason. I mean, he took no accountability, no ownership, nothing in in trial. There was no, I'm sorry, there was no remorse. There was, I'm going to get on stand and I'm going to make myself look good. That was it. So I don't believe that there, I mean, when I get mad, when I get in a fight, I walk away. It's common sense, common knowledge. You get mad at somebody you have a disagreement, you walk away, you don't brutally beat somebody to death. Oh, um, okay. So, anyway, so you don't know I why, will... and he says, do you want to come in? Are you sure you don't like yeah. you don't like messes? And you're like, what? And yeah. so you well, go in. No, he knew I was like, I was very much like a clean freak. Like my apartment was always organized. I mean, I grew up in an Italian household where everything was neat, tidy, and proper. Okay. And um, anyways, so I go in. And it's blood splattered. It was horrific. It was the worst of the worst. Like it, your feet are sticking to the floor. It's, he locked all the doors behind me, took my cell phone away from me instantly. And told me that I wasn't going anywhere. And I said, where's Nathan? Where's Nathan? Where's Nathan? And finally, he took me to the bathtub of the deceased, showed me the body, and told me that he was already going away for one account of murder. Why not make a coup? Honestly and truly, I didn't think I was getting out of there alive for a single second. I I thought this is it. And, but you know, what's crazy is I've watched shows like Criminal Minds and everything. And I knew from watching those shows that as crazy uh, and messed up as this sounds, that I had to be be cool, calm, and collective if I was going to get out of there alive or stand a chance at all. So I just said, I kept, you know, giving him compliments. I mean, like, you know, your life was turning around. You know, you're doing such a good job. Um, just trying to 
kind of deflect away from it as messed up as that sounds not focus on what was actually happening because I knew the moment I showed fear panic or anything that was what was going to get me killed so I had to keep my composure and this is going to be a dumb question but did you even think about these things like did those thoughts go through your mind or did you just know I need to be calm now and now I'm going Uh, to those thoughts those they went through your mind. Criminal minds, like it, it's crazy as it sounds, watching a show such as Criminal Minds went right through my head right away. And I was like, I knew. I was like, you know, the moment you show fear, the moment you show anything negative, that's what's going to get you killed. I said, I had to remain like just calm, calm. If I was going to get through a storm, I had to be calm. And so I just kept telling myself, like, just, just, Tell him what he wants to hear. Just tell him what he wants to hear. And that's pretty much, I was like, you know, like you had a lot going for you. You know, I was so proud of you. I was really happy to see you when you came, like just positive things. Although he really wasn't listening to much. I was pretty much talking to a wall at this point. Was he looking at you or was he doing something else? Oh, he was pouring himself wine at one time, pulling down my pants and trying to have sex with me. Because he knew he wasn't, he was going away for a long time. Oh my God. Oh yeah. Um, put a knife to my back at one point. Um, strangled me because I wouldn't help clean up the scene. All my she- blood vessels were swollen in my neck. Right. It was horrific. It was the worst of the worst. Th- that is absolutely the worst of the worst compounded on, on top of everything. And But you know what? What, what was even... I hate to say this. I don't want to say even worse, but pretty much almost to that point. The trial happened two years later, and I found out horrific details that I didn't know when I was in the apartment that day. And You found them out during the trial, like as you were sitting at the trial? Yeah. Yes. I found out that uh, they couldn't bury the deceased because they had to do an autopsy on his brain. So he couldn't even be buried for two years after. I found out that he died from blunt force trauma to the head and the neck. And uh, was beaten to death. Was alive for two to three hours and he watched him die. I found out that he had taken a naked selfie of himself covered in blood. As a trophy. Pretty sick. I, but we know, want to get him for a temporary access, don't we? Well, uh, I, I don't even know what to say to those things, you know. Uh, and but w- when you're in, you're in the the apartment with him. Did he tell you why he had done this? What oh, what led yeah, to it? We want to know if this is this is really good. I was so drunk. I've gotten drunk. I don't. That go was his reasoning. Oh, of course. Oh. Of course. Let's it, let's take the easy way out, right? Okay. And he asked you to help clean it up? Like clean up the... the... He wanted to clean up everything. And I said, you know this from studying police foundations and criminology. I said, even if we were to clean up this entire scene, the police shine a light. <laughs> and it, But again, there was no reasoning with him. There was no talking to him. His entire purpose of keeping me in that apartment was to clean, like, he was set 
on cleaning up. And when he didn't like the fact that he told him no, that's when he strangled me. And how did you get out from the strangling? Uh, I eventually uh, fell to the ground. And I wasn't unconscious or anything like that. I, I had a Gatorade there, luckily. Took a sip of that. Good. And uh, that was that. And I got up slowly. And uh, he threw sponges at me and said, you better get cleaning if you don't want that to happen again type thing. And... Uh, so I did for yeah. a second, and then he ran to the washroom, and I ran down 18 flights of stairs. So you were on the 18th floor. Correct. And I knew, like, one elevator was broken, and I knew that there was no way that I was going to have time to wait for an elevator. I knew that there was no possible way. Right. So I had to run down 18 flights of stairs, and I was shown at the trial, too, that he was seconds away from meeting me in that lobby. Based on the lobby photos or the photos, uh, the CCTV, video, the video yeah, surveillance, yeah. So you got Second out of there, photos. thank goodness. Where did you go? I, you know what? It's crazy because I, I lived here for like I don't know. It was at least ten years at that time, and I didn't even know where. It, like you go in this fight or flight mode and I didn't even know where I was. It was crazy. And so I saw this couple and I said, can you please take me to the police station? They wouldn't, of course, like you're my back of my shirt is covered just by like standing at the door. The back of my shirt was covered in the deceased's blood. And uh, so I ran to a variety store. The variety store guy tells me, oh, I can't use the phone in there. I have to go outside and use the pay phone. <laughs> yeah. Correct. Did you tell him what was going on or you're just like, yeah, I'm, yeah, I need yeah. help. This is an emergency. Yeah. He said, I'll stand outside with you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, okay. So I uh, stood outside. Uh, officers got there. Uh, they got there in the nick of time, actually, because I was like, oh, my God. I was like, it found at a trial that he had taken his passport and he was just about leaving the apartment when the cop showed up and arrested him. And I had to ask the police, like, I don't know, like a hundred billion times. I was like, is he really in custody? Is he really in custody? Like, and for some odd reason, I wanted to see him in custody, but I wasn't allowed like I needed to see, like I, I had, because he had a key to my apartment and everything. So I didn't oh feel God. safe. To go. Yeah. Didn't feel safe to go home. Um, so I stayed with a friend. Um, but it was, it was horrific. And I just remember having nightmares and flashbacks and the police advised me to move at this point too. So I was like, this was all when students were coming back for university and college too. So I was like, I'm never going to find a freaking place. It was so stressful. I mean, my PTSD, my anxiety was through the roof. I had met with a counselor and I hadn't been meeting with my nurse practitioner every single week. And she wanted me to do check-ins with her. So I did check-ins. And uh, I actually had to take a PTSD test. And I said, 
I can't take this test. They said, I'm not a war vet. They said, I don't have this. And sure enough, I ticked off every box and I was learning um, that you don't have to be a war vet to have PTSD. PTSD is actually anything trauma related. And I, I was like, I didn't go to war. I didn't fight a battle. I don't have any battle scars. I, I can't. And sure enough, I, I did. I had PTSD. I had anxiety and I had depression. And they wanted me to be on medication, but I said, absolutely not. I said, because I watched my biological mom turn when she went on meds. I said, I'll get through this by going to counseling. And by, you know, if I have to meet with a practitioner, that's fine. But they're like, we recommend you go on these anxiety meds. So I went on these anxiety meds. And uh, everything weighed really heavy on me. I had a whole whack of survivor's guilt. And I felt guilty for being alive. I felt guilty for crossing the street. I felt guilty for everything that I was doing because I was alive. And I couldn't take that pain and I couldn't take that ache. So in October of 2016, I decided that I would take my T4s, my anxiety meds, and mix them with alcohol and just see what happened. And sure enough, I skipped an entire day of my life, and uh, I'm surprised I'm even here today after that incident. Um, I, and you know what? Looking back on it, it was the most selfish thing that I could have ever done because I was one of the key witnesses in this homicide investigation. And for me to end my life would have given no closure, would have given nothing to the deceased family. And I thought, I can't take away something else from them. They've already had something so horrific taken away. I have to give them justice. Only I didn't know that the justice system wasn't justice. It is, I hate to even say this, but in Canada, our justice system is so geared towards the criminal. I've talked to people at the parole board and they tell me, well, you know, we don't just base the stay on the crime. We don't just base the sentence on the crime. I said, well, explain. They said, well, if they're showing good behavior in jail, you know, we, we base it on that. And I said, anybody can manipulate. I said, anybody can say anything they want. I said, and at the trial, of course, he made himself look like he he found God all of a sudden. You know, he's working out two to three times a day. Oh, he's he's a saint now. So, yeah, like, and, right. And speaking of the justice system, can you can we go back just a moment? Because the sure. police showed up, and then you went to the police station. Correct. I went to the police station. What was the uh-huh. first thing that they said to you or asked you? This is why. I'm having this podcast with you. This is why I wrote a book. They didn't ask me what happened to me first. They asked me, can you please make us a promise you won't turn to the streets for drug, sex, prostitution, etc." Okay, That's let me stop. I, I don't understand. I don't understand. What is the, what did they mean by that? Did they think that, what did they mean by that? Oh, immediately I knew what they meant by that. Immediately it sunk into my head that, wow, like, this is an epidemic. Like now when I see people shooting up on the streets, I don't, I ask myself, what horrific trauma did they go through? I don't sit there and judge them anymore. Like this is why mental health is so on the rise. Um, 
basically they said that to me because that's what most people turn to. Most people can't find or don't want to find their strength or not even that, that they don't have the support network around them. I had people like, I don't want to sound cocky or arrogant, but I had more people than I even, there were days where I felt so overwhelmed because so many people were reaching out to me, asking me what they could do to help everything. Like I had a great network, but there are so many girls and boys who are younger than myself. I was 24 going through all this. And there were just, there are so many people that don't have the support networks that don't have, like, I had amazing police. I had amazing detectives. I was surrounded by amazing, inspirational people. But not everybody has the same outcome. Not everybody gets police that are so dedicated and that actually care about that. Like these police officers gave me their cell phone numbers and told me that I could reach out to them whenever. Wow. It didn't matter. Uh, it was unbelievable the amount of support. One of my counselors actually, they yeah. they met me in the park to do a safety check to mm. make sure that I was okay. Like I can't tell you how much they went above and beyond for me. Yeah. And um, we're going to get to your book a little bit later. So, but yeah. you tell us what happened, what you do with the proceeds for your book. So it actually goes to um, victim services at the police station. So they actually helped purchase a service dog to help survivors and witnesses of crime. So I use my money. Um, and the reason for this entire book is I don't keep a single profit. I can tell you that right now. I have given it all to the police station here. And uh, I want it to go and help other survivors because if they need that one last counseling session to stop them from hurting themselves or whatever they need, I want to be that support. I want to be there for them in a sense where I can provide them with something. I can give them that extra thing that they they need, um, give them that extra check-in point. You know what I mean? And it just all comes down to how I can support other people and how I can be there for them because I was so lucky. I was so blessed. I was so grateful to have such a huge network of people that were genuine and people that cared. You know, without those supports, I don't know that I'd be here talking to you today. I could be one of those people shooting up on the streets. It's so easy to turn to that, especially when you your self-confidence, your self-esteem, everything is shot to hell. Like I had to rebuild myself from scratch. I, I didn't believe in myself. I did I didn't want to be alive. I felt so unworthy. I felt devalued. I I hated myself. I my even my skin took a physical toll. I got acne for the first time. My legs were covered in eczema. It was awful and it's such a scary process. To, I mean, I 100% am all for going to the police, telling them everything that happened and being honest and open and transparent so they can get to the root of the issue, get to the justice, everything. However, it's very invasive as well. Like I had to strip down naked in front of police officers that I I didn't know. I had to get DNA samples at everything they had to do. 
So especially when you're sexually assaulted. Um, so it's it's an invasive procedure. And that's why it's so it, like it's vital to have that support network. Without that support network, you could you could crash very, yeah. very fast. Well um so and I'm- I had amazing officers look after me during that process, but it's it's very invasive. But at the end of the day, you have to think, I'm not doing this for myself. I'm doing this because the deceased isn't here. I have to give justice now. I have to give my statement for the deceased. I wasn't thinking about anybody else but the deceased and mm-hmm. his family and what they had to go through. So I knew that I needed to do. And I told the police, like, anything you need from me, anything you want from me, I don't care what time it is. I will come to the police station. I will give you everything that you need because I had a nothing to hide and B, I needed to somehow give back to the deceased that wasn't there and and find some justice, even though it's a broken system, not a justice system, because again, we give more rights to the criminal than we do the survivors or the family of the deceased for that matter. And you said it was um, two years later that the trial actually happens. Uh, and so, and here in Canada, you get double time and a half served for every day before the trial. Wait, what do you mean? Double time and a half served. So, you know, when you work on a holiday and you get yeah. double pay? Yeah. Yeah. So basically, for the two years before the trial, the person who's accused of the trial, if they were to have been convicted, convicted, they get double time and half of what they've already used towards their sentence? Correct. I see. So did that cause you a lot of anxiety to want to get to the trial? Um, no. So there was a pre-trial in, was it... September of 2017, so a year later, there was a pre-trial, um, which I could only go for what I was being interviewed for. And then <clears throat> the actual full-on trial, um, I was there for the entire thing. I was the first to take the stand. And um, what people also don't know is I went into the courthouse a month before the trial. Because you have to listen to your 911 call again. You have to listen to all your statements and read over all your statements because it's called court prep. You have to be prepared for what they're going to ask you in trial in case, you know, the defense ends up turning something or switching a word around. You have to be prepared for anything that's going to come your way. So I do get that. But it is a lot. It's very overwhelming. That's why it is vital. I think I went to counseling probably every other day during that process. Uh, I reached out to my counselor. It was a lot of work. It was mentally. It was emotionally. It was physically. Everything. It was just draining all the way around. What would... So tell us about the trial. Tell us about, you said you were the first witness. I was the first one to take the stand. Um, Like I said before, um, in this podcast, it was almost just as horrific as the first day or when I was first put in the murder scene. Um, It was like you learn new details that you didn't know. You learn new evidence that you had no idea about. And it's like your mind is left to process everything all over again. Like, 
people think because, oh, like the statements are over with the police. Well, then it's over. No, you have the pretrial, you have the trial, you have the court prep. It's layers and layers and it's chapters and chapters. Like now the next chapter is a score to temporary access. And I will tell you right now, the person that did this horrific event hasn't been quiet once in jail. Every year it's been, oh, I need to go to the hospital. I need this. I I want to uh, say that the trial was unfair. He wanted to appeal. Like, it's been something yearly. It hasn't been quiet. It hasn't been silence. That's why I don't see where the responsibility is or the accountability is. Yeah. When you haven't, you've applied for anything, if everything that you could to get this, to get that, to get whatever serves your purpose. But when are you taking accountability and actually serving your time without applying for this, that, the other thing? And that's the thing with criminals is, you know, I, I understand if you went to jail for you know, a minor offense, like you stole a chocolate bar from a store. Okay, you can be rehabilitated. Gang members can be rehabilitated. I've seen it. However, people that commit horrific acts of murder, people who are child rapists, wow. they only learn to manipulate the system. I don't think that they get any better. They tell the counselors, they tell the judges everything they want to hear. Even in the trial, there was no remorse. There was no account. There was, I found God. I'm a better person. I work out two, three times a day. Da, 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 da. So even though he said, quote, I'm a better person, he was not admitting that he had done anything wrong. He just. Oh, he was so intoxicated. Again, used that whole. Oh. I was so intoxicated. You know what? Like I said before, I've gotten drunk. I don't go around killing people. Like it's excuses, excuses. Oh, he made me so mad. Well, then go take a walk. I, I've gone in arguments and disagreements with my friends. I don't go brutally killing them. I leave the room. I take a break. I take a moment. You don't brutally kill someone with your bare hands and leave them on the floor for two to three hours and tell me that that's an accident. He wanted to claim manslaughter in the trial. How sick is that? Again, where's the accountability? And... Manslaughter he, is an accident. Manslaughter yeah, is right. a car accident. It's not brutally murdering someone. That is not manslaughter. He was charged with second degree murder because first degree murder yeah. means you planned it. There was no plan. It was second degree murder. However, yeah. like, again, where's the life sentence? The deceased doesn't get to come back and get married and have kids, but that if the person that did this horrific tragic thing could potentially walk the street by the time he's 40 and get married and have kids and still have a life if i was the deceased i'd be rolling around in my grave like how disrespectful is that like i don't know if you're familiar with the carl homoka and paul bernardo story but carla homoka was released from jail after murdering her own sister and now has two kids like, I don't see where there's justice in any of this. I truly and truly, I don't. I feel like we're letting more murderers out to reoffend, And it, we're wondering why everything is the way that it is. Why crime is up. 
like I said, people who go away for something minor, sure. But people who go away for these offenses only learned to get worse. They don't get better. And I am worried and scared for the day that he gets released. Who do you think he's going to want revenge on? It's going to be me. Oh, I can apply for, you know, a no contact order, but it doesn't mean I'll get it. Like, where's the, where's the safety precautions? Where's this precaution? This is why so many people that, you know, get charged for domestic violence, then they end up, you know, back out on the street and they end up murdering the person that they did this to because we're just so lenient in the criminal justice system. We're like, oh, well, they only hit that person once, so they're good. No. Once a a domestic abuser, always a domestic abuser. They don't get better. They get worse. So, you know, so he was obviously convicted uh, of second-degree murder. uh, And what was his sentence? His sentence was 14 years, but he can apply for a parole by the... So he can apply for... Full eligibility by 2030. How wonderful is that? Full, uh, full eligibility and the trial meaning took place in 2018. Okay, so it... but you know, but then there's this too that the parole board gives me. Well, you know what? We don't just you know think about the murder and the horrific stuff. We we think about you know his time in in jail. Oh, and now he has a job too in jail. So. You know, they look at all that. So if this scored a temporary release, if he does get access for that, then, and if he does do a really good job, he could be up for earlier parole. What, so how are you kept up to date on, on parole and, uh, and the goings on? So I have registered with the parole board, which means uh, their victim services. So I get letters. Um, from them talking about what, um, like to keep me up to date, what's going on, what he's applying for, et cetera. Okay. And the thing that people don't understand is after the trial over again, it's another chapter being closed. Um, but this is a life sentence for me and the deceased's family. We have to deal with him for the rest of our lives. Even when he's out of jail, we have to deal with him, right? Like, for he'll have a parole officer he'll have parole violation like all of that you know we'll get notification on that for the rest of our lives that isn't something that's ever going away so you know you could have the most wonderful greatest day and it could be turned into hell really fast if you go and check that mailbox you're never aware of when you're going to get one what it's going to be about nothing like you could be out with your friends and then come home and check your mailbox and boom, there's a letter and there goes the rest of your day. I would love to say to you that it doesn't get to me, but I'm somebody that I need to open something, right? Especially something so significant as that. Sure. I wouldn't wait for the next day because I would sleep. It would just make my anxiety go through hell. And I'm not going to do that to myself. So I open it up right then and there. And yes, I cry. I get mad. I get angry without a shadow of a doubt. But then I try my hardest to talk to my counselor, to talk to my nurse practitioner, to talk to that support network and try to 
turn myself around, try to turn my emotions and feelings around so I'm not consumed by it because the moment I get consumed by it, the moment that it's going to kill me. And are you, you're basically re-traumatized to a degree every time you check your mailbox, right? Absolutely. Without a shadow of a doubt. And that, that whole, like, it's like coming to terms with it all over again. I mean, I know that it's already happening. But then when you get a letter, you just know that, okay, this really is my reality. This is really what I'm dealing with for the rest of my life. And it's hard to not, you know what, I'm somebody who is open and honest and transparent about emotions. And I will tell you right now from the bottom of my heart that anybody that is going through the same thing or on the same journey as myself, it is important that you feel feel every emotion that you need to feel when you need to feel it and when you get those letters if you need to cry scream go punch your punching bag lift some weights go to the gym run on the treadmill whatever the case is i commend you and i think that that's the best thing that you can do for yourself because the moment you start hiding and denying your emotions is when you go into a negative hole when you go into the dark path and you don't want that for yourself So I think it's vital to talk about your feelings and emotions and try to get them out in the most healthiest, positive Mm -hmm. ways that you can and express how you're feeling. Mm -hmm. Talk about it with your therapist. Talk about it with your nurse practitioner. (laughs) That is my advice to anybody who is going through what I am going through. Yeah. And and you, when I spoke with you before, when we spoke before, when we were yeah. preparing for the podcast, you had said that you got, the last time you got a letter, there's there supposed to be a hearing in October? Uh, yep, there's supposed to be a hearing in October, and I haven't heard anything since. And what is the uh, hearing so, about if if he's not um, eligible until 2030? Nope. Uh, there's other things that you can apply for. So I there's see. not just parole. Okay. There's that day parole that you can apply for, but he's not at that term yet. There's a score to temporary access, which actually I found out that you can apply for any time in your sentence. So that's a bit frustrating to say the least. Um, a score to temporary access is basically you get to go to church or you get to go to workshops or different things where you're escorted by a parole officer. And I just, I feel like Nathan would love nothing more than to do those workshops and, and do all that, but he can't. And I'm not just going to speak. And Nathan is about the deceased. People. I'm not just, yes, I'm mm-hmm. not just going to speak to Nathan as the deceased. I'm going to tell you that if roles were reversed, he'd be sitting here with you right now. I'm going to tell you that he is so uplifting. He is so energetic. He is so positive. He is an amazing soul, an amazing person, someone that you just want to have a conversation with. He's the life of the party. He is so down to earth and he is so genuine and he is so humble. And his family has been nothing but incredible to me. I cannot thank them enough for their support, their kindness. I mean, uh, Nathan's mom actually is the one that designed my website. And she has gone above and beyond for me more than I can even begin to tell you. Um, She's in the tech world. So she's she's really helped me huge. Uh, She believes in me sometimes more than I even believe in myself. Uh, his family has been nothing but a light for me, has been nothing but there for me, supportive, inspirational, mm-hmm. kind, just amazing people. Like I know I can reach out to them at any time of day and I know that they'll be there for me. 
and vice versa. Like I will always be there for them. I hate that I'm the one who delivers this news to them. Um, I hate that I'm the one who calls them and tells them when I we're going to get a letter and stuff. Um, that's something that really hurts me because I, I hate being the one that says, oh, heads up, you know, you're going to get this and you're going to hear about this. And I mean, they already went through the most unthinkable thing, you know, losing your son. I, I have stepkids of my own now and I can't, I can't ever for a second imagine getting that phone call saying that your child's not coming back. Um, it's horrific in every way. And I just, again, I feel like the deceased is so disrespected. I feel like there's no real justice. You know, you're in the States and you sell drugs. You're in there for almost life. But here in Canada, you commit murder and it's like, oh, well, you know, if you're really good, you can get it out earlier. Oh, we don't just base it on the crime. We base it on how they are. Like here at our jail in my city, they were actually giving criminals $10,000 because their stay was just so horrific for them. I'm sorry. I didn't know jail was supposed to be a four-star hotel. Like, I just, I don't, again, I feel like the system caters to the horrific offenders more than it caters to survivors and witnesses. And this is why we have the epidemic on our hands. This is why there's so many people mm -hmm. turning to the streets. Because they don't feel heard. They don't feel like they have a voice. So now I am stepping up to the plate and I will be the voice of reason. I will be the voice of change. I reached out to my member of parliament. I explained everything. And I'm trying so hard to make the steps, to make the changes. Because guess what? The streets are only going to get worse. Epidemic is on the rise for drugs, sex, prostitution, etc. This is how sex trafficking happens. These young girls are could be younger than me, 15, 16, 14, going through horrific trauma, and their brains aren't fully developed. So where do you think they're going to turn to? It's only getting worse, and it's not getting better. And there's not enough mental health supports. There's not enough counseling. There's not enough, like, for instance, our police station. Uh, the victim services is open eight till four, Monday to Friday. Okay, well, you and I both know that crime doesn't stop after 4 p.m. or what about before 8 a.m.? Or what happens to these people on the weekend? We just tell them, well, wait till Monday, wait till the business hours. Mom. Crime doesn't stop happening. Like, it, it doesn't, it's not an eight till four thing. Yeah. And this is why people aren't, getting it and aren't understanding it people need help right away right away they need the support especially if they don't have any support they need counseling they need a counselor they need a professional to talk to right away or that's when they go to suicide mode that's when they go to let's go to the streets because that's an easier outcome yeah exactly and you know you talk you you said to me something that I've I've said to people I've heard said to me a lot and you mentioned it earlier on this episode which is um, I don't know if you use these exact words but it's okay to not be okay because it's about yeah. feeling those emotions it's not pushing them down it's not pushing them away no, no, but no. it's but in the situation that you were in you had to have and have to continue to have that support system that you talked about Chelsea oh, yeah. your friends I, I your fam you know I yeah. And oh, absolutely. 
And another thing that you said, uh, a couple things that you said have, have, you know, really saved you are, are the gym. You know, we, we've talked a little bit about your running and, and everything. And then giving back, the way that you're giving back. What was the name of, what is the name of your book? We'll put a link in the show notes and everything. But what is the name of your book? Finding Strength Through Tragedy. So it's crazy that I came up with the title before anything else. And it was during the pandemic that I wrote this. And okay. I did. I knew that I needed to share my story. I knew that I needed to get out there. I knew I needed to reach out yeah. to podcast people. I knew that I was on a mission. And I knew that I had to be the voice of reason, the voice of change. I knew that my story could be a teaching tool and a teaching lesson to somebody else. I don't share my story because I want attention. I share my story because this is happening worldwide, countrywide, nationwide. This isn't going away. This is only becoming more and more on the rise. And I need people to know and understand they're not alone. And even if they feel like they're alone, I have a Facebook group called Finding Strength Through Tragedy and my Facebook page, Ashley Inspire. I have my Facebook or my TikTok account, Ashley Inspire. And I really just want people to feel like they can reach out to me. And I understand what it's like Lions. to not be okay. I understand yeah. the journey. Yeah. I understand the hardship. Are you ever going to be okay from this? Absolutely not. But can you get through it? And can you get through the other side? Yes, but that takes lots of healing. Like you're rebuilding yourself from scratch entirely. And this book, like it helps save my life to be so open, to be so honest, to be so transparent with every feeling, with every emotion. I wanted people to capture my journey and I wanted them to picture, you know, what it's like to be in my shoes and and go through it step by step so they could understand that, you know, no, it's never going to be over, but it's in time doesn't heal all wounds. I'm a big believer. It's about what we do in that time, like going to the gym, connecting with our friends over coffee, going to workshops, you know, reaching out to your counselor, writing a book, writing a song, writing a poem, journaling, you know, doing art stuff, like finding something that works for you because every person is going to be different and every person is going to have a different approach. My approach was writing it all down so mm. I could be that relatable factor to other people. Yeah, that and- was how I needed to heal. That was my journey to healing is I find strength through helping others. And you mentioned earlier um, when you were talking about that October day in 2016 where you you mixed the pills and the alcohol. Thank goodness that you you survived. But you mentioned that there are some people who, uh, and I, I might get your words wrong, but you said something to the effect of there are some people who don't want to find their strength or can't find their strength. And I, yes. I just want to say as somebody who has heard this story from you now a few times uh, that you are somebody who you are an example of somebody who's found strength and you've taken that strength and you've turned it into kindness and giving back, which is about the most powerful thing we should do, or excuse me, can do. And you should be very proud of yourself. And I, I am proud to have you on the show. And I know we've covered a whole lot today, but is there anything else as we're wrapping up here that you want to make sure that you say before we kind of end, end the show? I just want to say to every single person that is going through something so horrific in their life, trauma or not trauma rather you're just struggling to get through day by day take it hour by hour take it minute by minute 
don't rush how you feel. Focus on how you feel. Focus all your attention and energy on you. It's okay to be selfish. It's okay to just, you know, watch your favorite show. It's okay not to be okay. But I want people to understand that I believe in you, that you are a warrior, that you are courageous, that you are brave, and that you can get through anything. And when you do get through it, possibilities become endless. Did I ever think that I'd be an author of a book? Did I ever think I'd be sitting here doing a podcast? Absolutely not. But I truly believe that when you come face to face with your trauma and you're ready to share your story, share it because you don't know who it's impacting. You don't know how many lives it's touching. You know, you could be making a difference in one person's life at least just by telling and talking about your experience and the steps that you took to get through hell to enter a calming lifestyle that is suited best for you. And people can't be afraid to put themselves first. People can't be afraid to take out all the toxicity in their life. They can't be afraid of hurting other people's feelings. You have to do what is right for you in the moment so that way you can heal and focus on you. Take all the time that you need. There's no rush in healing. Healing is ongoing. I'm still doing it every day. I'm still learning things about myself that I didn't know. I'm rediscovering. I'm rebuilding my empire. I'm rebuilding my legacy. Every day is a new day, a new chapter, a new beginning. You just have to focus and try to focus on all the positives in your life and try to let go of all the negative toxicity in your life. And like I said, there's different strategies to use to do that. And it all doesn't come at once. Healing is ongoing, but it's about being patient and loving yourself fully and truly so you can get through. That is uh, amazing and hopeful and optimistic and strong. And Ashley, I cannot thank you enough for coming on and for the work that you're doing. Uh, like I said, we will have a link to the book in the show notes. Uh, say it one more time, please, the title of the book. Finding Strength Through Tragedy. Awesome. Ashley, thank you so much for everything that you're doing. And thank you for coming on and sharing your story. And also one more thing, check yeah. out my blog on my website. Um, it's ashleyinspires.ca. Okay. And there are a ton of blogs that focus on mental health, that focus on actually how does trauma affect your sleep? How does trauma affect your eating habits? It's crazy what trauma could do to you, but please take a look at that as well. I do have a YouTube channel as well. So please check that out as well. And for everybody Please know that I'm I'm here. I will be that safe place for anybody who needs it. Ashleyinspires.ca. Awesome. Ashley, thank you so much. I really thank appreciate it. Thank you so much for this amazing podcast. And thank you so much for doing what you're doing and giving people that platform so they can share their stories and their healing journey with others. Of course. And, uh, you know, any links uh, we will share in the show notes. Uh, Ashley, Wish you nothing but the best. Thank you for all of your strength and all of your work. Thank you. And for everybody else, I will end the show the same way I try to end everyone, which is a reminder that there is always room for kindness and grace, no matter the situation. And even with ourselves, there is always room for kindness and grace. And we will see you next time on Sad Times.
You've been listening to a fourth hand joint.